This, I think, was a great ethics seminar. A lot of wonderful things to think about. Right, what is wrong, who's to say, really, in the end. I mean, because it is unknowable. What's the big brew? <laughs> you want answers? I think I'm entitled. You can't handle the truth. Following program is closed captioned for the thinking impaired. Welcome to the beautiful campus of LCMSU, everyone. Who are you? I am. The Chancellor. Yeah, baby. Master <laughs> Marcus Zill. <laughs> Once again, everybody, Pastor Pacey was with us last week as we began a discussion on apologetics and the resurrection of Jesus. Pastor Pacey is the associate pastor at Memorial Lutheran Church and School down in Houston, Texas, and a great friend of the program and of LCMSU. And so it's good to have you back. Why don't you kind of refresh us for those that maybe did listen and maybe those that didn't get a chance to hear what kind of where we were at when we uh, stopped last time? Last time, we were talking about Gary Habermas and his minimal facts method. And the, by way of the minimal facts, the idea is, is there are things out there that scholars, skeptics, you know, people who generally work in the area of history, uh, they will all agree and say, okay, that's a fact. Okay. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a hard thing to come to, but there sure. are certain kinds of things about Jesus where people will just say that's a fact. There's got to be so certain things, things like, we just, okay, we can agree on these things. Exactly. And Habermas's position on that is, is once you get all those facts together and identified, and you, and you put them together the way you put, say, a jigsaw puzzle together, uh, what you have then is an argument, and what you have is uh, an argument for the resurrection. Hmm. So starting with that Jesus exists, that he is uh, betrayed, that he's arrested, that he's crucified, that there's an experience of his rising from the grave after the fact, by first the, the women, then there's the disciples who become the apostles, and then you have uh, James of Jerusalem, and finally Saul Tarsus who becomes Paul. Uh, all those pieces together, according to Habermas, and I think anybody who's uh, hearing the argument and following the argument will say, okay, fine, the outcome of that argument is yes, that Christ, in fact, rose from the grave. That's the point, that's the position. Okay. Now, the one thing we have to we have to add, though, is that doesn't give meaning to the resurrection sure. in the way the scriptures give meaning. This is about the overcoming of sins. This is about the new life in in Christ. I mean, those things are things the scriptures describe. But the uh, the truthfulness, the fact that it took place, that it's it's historic, that's what these minimal facts put together grant to us. So that's the that's the kind of the summary. Okay. One thing I wanted to uh, bring up now, having gone through those pieces is the importance of Paul in this discussion um, for the, the establishment of the minimal facts, but just a general understanding of why uh, academics say prefer Paul to the Gospels. Hmm. And the academics here, I'm talking about people like Bart Ehrman, people who work in the field of biblical criticism, uh, or 
just general religious historians. Okay. See, when it comes to St. Paul, he provides certain kinds of things uh, because of the letters and because of the person. Paul is recognized by scholars as a person who was trained uh, as a scholar to do uh, scholarly work, to uh, see things, understand things, be able to write, uh, not be easily misled, uh, things of that nature. And so starting out with Paul as Saint Paul, uh, as, as Saul of Tarsus, we have a person here who was new to faith, but was absolutely hostile to the Christian faith. And because of the experience of the, uh, that, that Paul has with the resurrected Christ, he is in fact converted from false belief or unbelief to belief in Jesus as the resurrected Christ, the resurrected Messiah. And what that means is, is here you have a position before his conversion, where because of the hostility, because he had um, everything to lose in terms of his wife, his position, uh, his whole future. When Paul converts from Judaism to Christianity, he loses out on all of those things. So what that means is, is that Paul didn't have a real obvious uh, reason for becoming a Christian the way, say, the disciples might have that reason. People have said, you know, there's some kind of a, of a game going on here, and the disciples want to keep it going, and so they just make up the, 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 the idea of the resurrection so they can keep talking about Jesus and keep that whole thing moving forward. That's not true at all for Paul. He's sure. opposed to Jesus from the very beginning. He gives up on that position, and the reason for it is because he runs into the resurrected Christ. So in other words, that's contrary to interest. It's a strong kind of an argument. The other thing is that Paul establishes for us in the letter, which are generally recognized as authentic letters, not all of them, but the ones I'm talking about, First Corinthians, Galatians. He establishes us for us a timeline that helps us to see how quickly the proclamation of the resurrection comes online and is uh, let loose on the world. So what we know about Paul is, is that he converts to Christianity about two years after the resurrection. Uh, there's a three-year period or so where he falls off the map, and at about year five out from the resurrection, Paul then is beginning to preach, teach, and he has this meeting with Peter in Jerusalem. This was the first of the meeting. Sure. About 14 years after that is what Galatians says. In other words, 20 years after the resurrection, Paul is up there again, uh, Council of Jerusalem, what do we do with all these Gentiles kind of stuff? In other words, Council of Jerusalem is generally recognized as having occurred around A.D. 50. You march all of that back, the 14 years, the three years, to the beginning of those, those two years then. And what somebody like Bart Ehrman will say, now Bart Ehrman was a Christian, he's no longer a Christian, and now he's got kind of a cottage industry going of writing books about how Christians are mistaken. Bart Ehrman will say that the preaching of the resurrection from the apostles takes place in a way that we can point to, that we can say that's a fact, within about a year or two at the most after the resurrection. Uh, James Dunn, who uh, uh, teaches at Durham, I think he was our just, Dr. Just's uh, doctoral father, he says that the, the kind of creedal formulations that we run into 1 Corinthians were probably set down within six months to a year after the resurrection itself. So in other words, whereas when people look at the Gospels and, and academics and skeptics will say, hey, those Gospels are late, they're 80 years, 100 years after, when it comes to Paul and with Paul's writing, those same academics will say the uh, preaching of the resurrection took place within a year of the resurrection of Jesus himself, or at least that date when they say he was resurrected. So you, you can't say the resurrection was something that developed over time, 
But in the preaching from the very beginning, the resurrection was a part of that preaching, and that's the point. That's very important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's super important. Okay, um, last time I also talked about how there was one thing that I wish were universally received as a fact, and it, is, it, it tends not to be, and that is the entombment of Jesus. The reason why the entombment of Jesus is important is because for us it establishes the uh, uh, what happens to the body after the cross and uh, all, all the way through that time to the resurrection itself. You see, some people would simply say now, as a way of dismissing these things, right, that when Jesus dies, he goes into a shallow grave, and there's no body to contend with, that's why the tomb is empty. Uh, some people will say the reason why we have a Jesus-like figure after the death is because Jesus had a secret twin, Jesus dies and, you know, goes into this anonymous grave, and the secret twin comes on the scene, and everybody's spooked, right? That's the resurrection. And what's, well, you know what's kind of funny about that is everybody acts like these, these disciples were such uh, kind of stupid dopes, and, right. and yet they got all these ways of concocting this kind of stuff. Right. So what, what the entombment stuff is about is about maintaining the, the custody of the body from the time when Pilate releases that body from the cross mm-hmm. to the time when we see the resurrected Christ uh, at, uh, on, on Easter morning. Right. And, and following that, that, that timeline and making sure that that body is in the grave is all important because it then takes away all the kind of false theories that are hatched to try to explain away the resurrection. So the first thing, that, or the first person we have to consider is going to be uh, Joseph of Arimathea. And the reason for that is, is because he is the one then who requests the body. He is the one who takes the body and brings it to the tomb uh, that was cut into the rock in the park. And then he is the one who first uh, hastily buries the body of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now, just right there, somebody could say, look, how do we know that Joseph did what the scriptures say he did. How do we know that he didn't take the body, go and dump the body somewhere, not telling anybody about it, and then after the fact, you know, hey, there's an empty tomb. Whoa, that's amazing. Sure. You know, there's no, no body in there, kind of a thing. When you read the gospel accounts and you read the passion accounts, what you'll find is, is while it's true that Joseph of Arimathea does take the body from the cross, does bring the linen shroud, does have the kind of hasty burial. He is being observed by other people so that other people know where the body is, and they follow it from the cross to the tomb. Hmm. Now, now, who are these people? Well, well it's, the, the it's, is, it's the women, right? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not trying to... <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I was right. excited I got it right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, it's the women. I mean, the women are the ones who, they don't, they don't participate, say, at this point. But they do watch, they do follow, and they do go. And the, the, firm, the further confirmation of this as a fact is that when it comes to then, you know, the Sabbath has ended, it's now Sunday, the women know exactly where the body of Jesus is buried. Now, if they hadn't followed the body to the tomb, They'd have people no could ask, well, how do they know? Yeah. yeah, I mean, how would they know? That would that would open the story up to there's something fishy going on. Here. So they actually not become witnesses. They just they don't simply become witnesses of him in his risen state. 
They were witnesses yeah. of his entombment and being placed in the tomb. Yes, I, you know, I've never really thought about how important that is, but that's crucial. That, yeah, it's crucial because it's that. It's well, that, it's kind of like Joseph Smith, you know, going out. Well, who was there to see him get the plate? Well, nobody, <laughs> just him. It's his word or nobody's. But here you have the right. women there observing it. That's that's excellent. Yeah, and, and that's a great point too. Yeah, because you have to in, in Mormonism, the whole thing is based on whether you breathe, you believe the prophet or not. Right. But here the idea is it's not a single person, but it's the interaction of all the various parties that brings the, the strength to what's being said here. I mean, ev- absolutely everything from beginning to end has witnesses yeah. testifying to it. Exactly. So with the women observing them, the next the next group is going to be the, the, the same group of women who on that morning are going out to the tomb. And it's interesting because if you listen to the words now, you know, they're saying, you know, we know where we're going. Uh, what are we going to do when we get there? Because we know what kind of a situation it is. There's a tomb. Yeah, there's seen a it. door. It's huge. Yeah, they've seen it. Exactly. You know, so, you know, how are we going to shift the door? You know, we don't have the strength among us to, to pull this thing off. And Which so actually makes you think been, that, Ian, if I might, that there might have had to have been some other guys there, too, in addition to the women, even though they're not recorded, just to try to, to get this uh, rock in place. Because yeah, sure. surely Joseph wasn't or... just, you know, He-Man Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, chances are he had some uh, young bucks with him to help him uh, roll it across, too. It's a possibility, for sure. But what this means in the in the scheme that we're discussing here, which, by the way, is kind of a, of a mystery kind of a, an idea, like a mystery story. Sure. You know, there's a body, and the body's gone, and who's the person responsible for it? Uh-huh. Unless I'm mistaken, that's how Montgomery and Rosenblatt talk about it. And Montgomery is like a big Sherlock Holmes fan, at least that's how I understand it. So this is, you know, kind of in the background is that uh, this story can be thought of as a kind of a mystery story. Mm-hmm. So the women we know, though, are in no position. They go, they're, they are actually absolutely grief-stricken and leave. And when they come back, because they know the tomb is sealed and they don't have the muscle among them, this is the discussion, you know, how are we going to move the door? So what that means is, is if you're looking for a candidate for stealing the body, the women are, are, are not going to fit the bill there. Hmm. Don't have the strength. Sure. They're grief-stricken and they're hiding. They're observing the Sabbath, being pious Jewish women. They're observing the Passover, being pious Jewish women. You know, the women are not going to be uh, the suspect here. After that, and, and related, really, are going to be the disciples. You could say the disciples have the strength among them, you know, fishermen and other kinds of guys, they probably could could shift the door. But the description that you have for them in the Scriptures is they are absolutely grief-stricken, A. B, they are afraid of being rounded up and being the next uh, can't next series of candidates for crucifixion being Jesus' disciple. I mean, everybody remembers they all kind of ditched him before the resurrection, yeah. <laughs> except for John, right. who went, I mean, who, I mean, before the crucifixion, so they've already right. demonstrated that. Yeah, John and Peter are kind of hanging on on the, on the edges, and everybody else is absolutely hiding, hiding out who knows where. So while you have the possibility in terms of strength, that sort of thing, you know, everything else you know about the disciples says they were not in any position to be messing with the tomb. So that kind of opens up a point here. Well, okay, now we've got a candidate. You know, what about this, um, this possibility of, of the disciples? Maybe they were faking that they were afraid, or maybe they had 
you know, somehow uh, work this out that, you know, we're going to go and steal the body, and that's really going to, you know, stir things up among the Jews, and we'll be able to proceed with what we want to say about Jesus. You know, who knows? The problem there is that if you continue to read the Gospels, and here I've got just a little snip from Matthew 27. After the day of the preparation, this is going to be, preparation being Friday, is going to be the Sabbath. It says, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before, before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, hmm. You have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So along with uh, what's going on here between women and Joseph, you know, uh, once the day that is the Sabbath starts, and remember, it's, these are Jewish days, right? This is Matthew. So we're talking about post-6 p.m. on the night when Christ is put into the tomb, in, in our way of thinking about days and nights. They go and they petition, petition Pilate, hey, if those guys are going to do something wrong here, get a guard down there and seal the tomb to make sure the dead body stays in the tomb, and there are no shenanigans, no kind of false stories as a result. Pilate then gets into power. He says, hey, you've got a bunch of guards. Go do it. And so what the guards do then is they show up. They seal the tomb. Uh, what people say is it's, it's, it's wax or it's something like that to demonstrate that it has been closed and it's remained closed. Mm -hmm. And there are soldiers who were then guarding the entrance to the tomb from the very beginning, really. Because Jesus' death was, you know, between 12 and 3, right? He dies on the cross. It's about three hours between uh, his being taken off the cross, roughly speaking, to the beginning of the next day. Okay, what this means is, is that the disciples who might have the muscle among them to open the door are now precluded from getting into the tomb because of the guard. And see, the guard there is all important, because they're the ones who are making sure that tomb is closed, remains closed, and nobody's getting in, and nobody's getting out if they could, if they had such a power. Mm -hmm. And so the disciples then are now also dismissed as possible suspects for removing the body from the tomb. Okay, the next group is going to be uh, the Jews themselves, right? The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Well, because they just well, they just went to Pilate and said, "Dude, you got to exactly right." I mean, they didn't say I mean, do. They, well, maybe they did. We don't know. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no way that the Jewish leaders are going to secretly, right. you know, tell somebody to go and maybe, maybe the soldiers. Hey, Pilate, we yeah. have a plan to go take the body and to, right. to deal with it. But first, we want you to guard it so it makes it tougher for us. That's just not going to happen. It goes entirely against everything the Jews are for there. Sure. They don't want to hear anything about a risen Christ. Right? They wanted to make sure that Christ stays where he's at. So Jewish leaders are dismissed entirely. There, there's no reason, there's no interest for them to go in and, and kind of start a story that Christ rose from the grave. So uh, Joseph the Arimathea is out, the women are yep. out, the disciples, yep. the Jewish leaders. Who do we have left? Roman leaders. I mean, for the same kinds of reasons, it, it goes against interest. There's no reason why the Roman leaders would want to give a sense that Jesus had risen from the grave. That's more riots, which is the reason why they crucified Jesus to begin <laughs> sure. with. Sure. Right? 
and the the, okay, the uh, centurions at the cross, if they wanted to make sure he is dead, they certainly have all the more reason to make sure that he remains in this tomb. Um, random persons, people will say, you know, there's a guy, a drifter coming through town, but the guards prevent all of that. So once you go through all of the people, once you go through all of the pieces, you know, what you find out is, is nobody really is in a position to make off with a body. And so this is another way of getting to, you know, the resurrection that Christ and the power of God is what brought the, the dead Christ from the tomb is the explanation for why Jesus rises from the grave and is alive three days after his death. You, you, you look at those kinds of things, you look at the people, they're all excluded, and this is the Sherlock Holmes thing. You know, once you've excluded all of the possibilities, whatever you're left with, even if it seems absurd, that's going to be the answer. Because all the other possibilities have been excluded, and so that, in the end, is what's going to be the answer. So for us, it's going to be the reason why the tomb is empty is because Christ has risen from the grave. That's the reason why it's empty. Well, what, what I find amazing with this, Ian, is that uh, when you kind of go through all of these people and how they, it just couldn't be them, it couldn't be them, this whole mystery. Um, well, obviously, when you talk to someone about um, the Scriptures and what the Scriptures have to say, this strikes me as a, as a very wonderful way when you're talking to a skeptic to try to open them up to, to then now hear, well, what did the Scriptures actually say about what took place? in terms sure. of, uh, because it sounds so much more reasonable uh, when you consider the all the other unreasonable possibilities, and it only can lead someone to the conclusion that, well, what if he really was who he said he was, and that he accomplished exactly. what he really said that he would. So we have yeah, just, we have, a, we have a couple minutes here left. Uh, uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, you know, take us back to, to Paul. I mean, this this is the linchpin of our faith. Um, it is. First, why is that so? That there's so much is writing on this, and it's it's wonderful to hear this uh, explanation of of all the you know things that that we think of as just kind of ancillary to the story, but really are incredible witnesses. Little things like the the the, the women actually observing Jesus being put in the tomb. We just wouldn't think of that, but yet this is crucial. Why why is the resurrection so crucial? Yeah, it's crucial in the end because. This is the means. These means of his death and his resurrection, these are the means that God himself has established for the forgiveness of our sins and life everlasting with him. So, you know, this is not something that, that's, that's, you know, you can choose to believe it or not believe it. It's not really central to the faith. No, this, is the, this is the center of the faith. This is the reason for the Christ. This is why Jesus took on human flesh, because he could die and he could rise from the grave. And through the things that we've discussed here, say the minimal facts method, you've got a kind of line of argumentation for even unbelievers. And, and now through the, the, the whodunit kind of stuff within the Gospels themselves, what you see is, is that uh, it, all the explanations that might be given for the resurrection do not accord with the facts, do not accord with the Scriptures. But it is Christ himself who is responsible. It's God himself who is responsible ultimately for the resurrection from the grave. And I'll just pick up with what you said, and this will be the conclusion, is that if Jesus in advance can say, hey, in three days, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die, and then on the third day I'm going to rise from the grave, and then he in fact does exactly that. Even for skeptics and unbelievers and folks that are friends and so on and so forth, when you present that to them, you might just stay there at the end. You might want to think a little more carefully about Jesus, who knows such things, 
can talk about such things and who, in fact, has done such things like the dying and the rising from the grave. Hmm. I mean, ordinarily, we just say, look, the Scriptures are true. Believe the Scriptures. But again, if it's an apologetics kind of thing, and it's about undermining and undercutting falsely, uh, you can clearly say to a person, look, you dismiss Jesus, but for these reasons, you should consider him once again. Hmm. Well, it's beautifully said, Pastor Pacey, and uh, thank you for this uh, walk through this uh, couple of two-part series on uh, resurrection apologetics as we talk about our Lord. Um, I know Craig Parton always talks about that if you have to choose uh, one area of apologetics to focus your attention, you always have to get back to Jesus. Would you agree with that? Totally. And uh, and if if you're going to focus your attention with Jesus, get back to to the resurrection. And uh, so anyways, thank you so much for walking us through this. Uh, um, this is a wonderful thing for all of our students and everybody listening to just kind of ponder and to, uh, to, to, to even marvel at the words that our Lord has given us that serve as, as such witness to, to the events of the resurrection and what our Lord has accomplished for us. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Yeah, he is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Well, that's all we have time for here today in the Student Union. Witness, January 2nd through 5th in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Check it out at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus, we'll help.